Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Today, I'm joined by Arjun Morthy, the co-founder and CEO of a company called The Factual. We're going to be talking about media literacy and fake news and trying to find the signal in the noise in these crazy times. Before we do any of that, I want to welcome Arjun to the show. Welcome to Trending in Education. Thanks very much, Michael. I'm delighted to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Awesome. I was delighted as well that you were someone who came on my radar because it's, I think it's useful to look outside of narrow sectors to get a broader understanding of what's going on. Thematically, I think that's something that I picked up from what you're doing at The Factual. Can you begin by giving us your background? We like to start with, you know, your hero's tale, how you got to this point in your professional life, and then we can get a little bit more into The Factual. Sure. Yeah. It's such a great question. I'll try not to ramble. I grew up all over the world. I was uh, born in India, grew up mostly in Nigeria and Canada. I then came to the States about 20 years ago for work. By training, I'm an engineer. I went to University of Waterloo for computer engineering, and I've worked in a number of startups since then. I went to grad school at Stanford and did more business kind of stuff before coming back to product uh, and product development, which is my true love. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been a news geek. It's corny, but my first job was a paperboy when I was 12 years old. I used to deliver the Brantford Expositor, which is uh, in this town called Brantford, Ontario in Southern Ontario. And I loved it. I thought it was a cool job. I you know, made decent money for being a kid at that age and my customers are happy. And I saw that this thing that I delivered six days a week really, I don't know, made them feel like they understood the world around them. Yeah, I thought that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And so ever since then, I've been a voracious reader. I'm the nerdy kid that had a subscription to the New Yorker since I was 19 for about 22 years, I think now. Yeah. Uh, so I love reading. And I think that when news is done well, it's useful and enjoyable and it's a good thing. But of course, news hasn't been done well for a long time now. And right around 2016, I just finished at the startup called HubSpot, which is a phenomenal company out of Boston. Yes. Yeah. Even calling it a startup is putting it into perspective because now it's an established leader in That's right. space, but there was a time everybody starts as a startup. Yeah. When I joined them, there were 180 people. When I left, there were 3,200 people. Wow. Great company, just an amazing management team. And I had the good fortune to work for Brian Halleck and the CEO for most of it. And I learned a ton from it, a ton, I, nearly everything good, frankly. And so, you know, when I left there and I moved to the area, I want to do something of my own. And I thought, you know, the news industry is going through a lot of turmoil. This is something that I'm really passionate about. And I could see myself spending a decade of my career trying to work on. And just to jump in a little bit, 2016, this is the Trump election. This is right after Cambridge Analytica. This is when fake news was a term of art, term of art by the generous, but it was a term that was getting out there into the collective consciousness. So starting something focused on the news at that time, it did feel like there was a tremendous opportunity at that time to jump into the fray. Yeah, that's a great point. Coincidentally, actually, we we started before Trump was elected. So we started in June of 2016. And, you know, of course, he was the candidate by then, but it wasn't really because of President Trump or at the time candidate Trump's nomination. It was just a general malaise with news, which had been going on for a while, you know, without digressing too much into the politics of 2016, people's dissatisfaction with the status quo, both 
politicians, political parties, and then the media in general had been running for a, a decade. You know, really, you could trace it back to 2004, 2005. So mm -hmm. the trend was already there and we saw this and we said, boy, how great would it be if we could do something about this and make the news more useful again? Mm -hmm. I met my co-founder who's amazing, this engineer named Joy Sojin, and he and I had similar ideas on how we could fix the news. And to be totally honest, Michael, they were extremely naive and frankly, we were arrogant thinking we could solve the news. I mean, this is a tough problem. And the two of us, non-journalists, couple of techies are like, oh yeah, psh, we'll have this done by lunch, you know? And it took a many, many years. The first two years were basically all a failure. Right. And then we started digging through the wreckage of various failures and talking to lots and lots of customers is when we understood what people really wanted from the news. And that sort of turned us onto the path of what is now the factory. Yeah, this crisis of trust that we're in around concepts like fake news, like even that term wasn't really around until right around when you were founded. There was a, maybe a tipping point or a critical mass that had been achieved. And that's, things haven't changed too terribly much in terms of the trust of these institutions. The critiques of the media certainly haven't gone away. What's it been like from 2016 until now in terms of the crisis that we're in? Like how would you describe the problem state and how has it evolved from when you founded until now? Yeah. The problem that we zeroed in on was that of news bias. You know, fake news is the term that gets uh, all the attention and in large part because of its overuse during the Trump presidency. But if you dig beneath the covers, it was seldom that people were saying the news was false, but rather that the news was misleading. Mm. It omitted certain facts. It framed a story a certain way. And so you had people say, oh, of course, you know, Fox News would say that, or of course CNN would say that, like, what were you expecting? Mm -hmm. So the lack of trust had more to do with the perceived bias of institutions, not that they were just outright printing falsehood. Mm -hmm. And so that was the problem that we zeroed in on. And that problem is still a big problem today. It is, in fact, actually getting worse and worse every year. And a big reason for that is that the media landscape has changed a lot in 30 years. Mm -hmm. So back when I was delivering a newspaper on those doorsteps, most of us understood that there were, you know, a handful of national level media outlets, the Times, the Journal, the Post, yeah, a few like that. And then there was some regional and local stuff kind of understood the media landscape. You got a couple of newspapers on your doorstep, you skimmed it. Yeah, I got it. No problem. No biggie. Now, though, there are thousands of outlets yeah. uh, that are showing up in your newsfeed. And most of us read online. You don't recognize half of them. If, they, if you do recognize or even if you do look at them, they all seem awfully biased and opinionated. It's really hard to make out, you know, what is news? Where does news end? Where does editorial start? The whole right. line has been blurred, et cetera. So the landscape has shifted a lot. And the big reason is because the internet has enabled this flourishing of news outlets to appear, digital-only outlets predominantly. And as they've flourished, because all of them largely are advertising-based solutions, they are all competing for your attention, every one of them. Whereas before you had three, four, five people looking for your attention, you've got thousands. And in that marketplace, they all have to carve out some segment of the population as that's who we're going to focus on. Because I can't win everyone. Right. So I'm going to focus on this slice. 
And when you choose to focus on a slice of the population, you will increasingly serve that population and what it wants to hear with a very narrow viewpoint and a very, you know, basically reconfirming their beliefs on that viewpoint. Right. But for most of us who are not in any narrow niche, like, you know, call it 20, 30% are in some narrow slice. Most of us are just average folks just trying to get through the day and pay the bills and get the kids to school and back. Mm. When we look at this stuff, we're like, what? That's, that makes no, that's not what I, I mean, really, right. this is true. That's what all of us are frustrated with. It's like, mm. we see this collection of people and they don't, or a collection of news outlets, and they don't really speak to any of us because most of us are kind of moderate, kind of average. And we see this extremist stuff and we're just, it doesn't resonate. So yeah. that's the shift in media landscape. It's driven by the internet. It's driven by advertising models. And that's continued to accelerate since 2016. It hasn't really changed. Yeah. And the other knock, I think, frequently against the middle is that it's kind of dumbed down so that if you do get the center of the road, you know, USA Today, just to, not to take a yeah. like it's somebody, but the idea is like it's less legit because it's more sort of simplified. And then the idea, I guess, based on the factual is to create some way to confirm the reliability, the credibility, and to identify the level of bias that might be involved in the media that we're consuming. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, our foundational assumptions were first that all news has bias because it's written by humans and we have our biases. We grew up in a certain place. We have a frame of reference. We understand how the world works. We'll write stories with that assumption. So that's okay. It's fine that you have some bias. The solution then is don't treat any one article as gospel, as, oh, this has to be the truth. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. It's like, no, everyone's got a little bit of a framing. You need to read multiple viewpoints and ideally multiple viewpoints across the political spectrum so you can see how the story is framed in different angles. For it. Mm. The second foundational assumption was that there is already great news in the world today. The problem with news isn't we need to write more news. It's we need to find the great news written by the great reporters who really, really know a topic well and have researched it well and present the complexity of the issue. We need to find those stories and leave behind the, the rubbish that we typically see. So Ajoy and I, and perhaps this is our bias being technologists, we saw this as a search problem. First and foremost, we thought of this as a search engine. So we set about building a search engine and we said, what if we could rank every article in the world published every day? And there's give or take about 10,000 a day in the United States. What if we could rank them for how credible they were? And we would use signals that people intuitively associated with credible news. So when we talked to people, we said, hey, what do you think makes for good news? And invariably, people said the same four things. They said, I like news that's really well-researched. It's got facts. It's got references and sources. I mean, isn't that what news is? Sources? Like, be well-sourced. Okay. The second thing they said is, I don't like news that's really opinionated. I'm exhausted. Oh, my God. Everything's opinionated. Just cut it out. Let me reach my own conclusions. Mm -hmm. The third thing they said is, I want it to be written by someone who is some sort of an expert in the topic. You know, people comment on politics one day and sports the next and COVID vaccines on the third day, like what, that's not really the best person I should be listening to. So give me an expert of some kind. And then the fourth is I'd like it to be from a reliable source, someplace that consistently publishes high quality material versus some site run out of Macedonia that's a link farm for clicks or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so 
we took those four things that people said and we turned it into an algorithm. Mm -hmm. And so every day we get these 10,000 odd articles from about 2,000 sites around the world. And this engine that we've built rates each article on those four dimensions. So the first dimension, which is evidence, it looks at links and quotes and it does some pretty sophisticated analysis. So some of it is very simplistic. It says how many links, how diverse are the links, how many quotes, how long are the quotes. Then it starts to get a little bit more complex. It says, hey, who did you choose to link to? How authoritative are they? Did you repeat links? Did you point back to yourself? Are the links politically diverse? All these kinds of things. And so you get this evidence score for each article. Then the next one is tonal analysis. So there's a class of uh, algorithms called natural language processing algorithms, NLP. And they basically do all kinds of text analysis for, you know, simplicity of a better word. And so we look at the emotional quotient or the emotional volume of an article relative to its length. And there's a bunch of English grammar rules that indicate if an article is subjective, first person pronouns, mm. adverbs that are needless, all those kinds of things that just tell you that, hey, this is more subjective than is objective. So you get an opinion score. Exclamation points, maybe. Yeah. I don't know if punctuations count. We exclude quotes. Okay. Uh, so you can quote someone who's very emotional, mm. but you as the writer should mm. minimize your emotion because you're mm. trying to transmit information. Mm. The third one, which is, you know, how much of an expert are you is where you can say it's, it's trending more towards AI or certainly machine learning. Each article that we rate is classified into one of a thousand different topics. And then we tag each of those articles with the author. And so if, for example, Michael, you were a journalist, we would look at your CV of every article you've ever written and we'll say, huh, Michael seems to write a lot about foreign policy. In fact, he seems to write exclusively on foreign policy. He doesn't seem to write on anything else. He must be some sort of specialist there. And then we look at your past writing and we're like, and not only does he focus on foreign policy, when he does write on it, it's really well researched and it's not opinionated. Mm -hmm. And therefore your ranking when it comes to foreign policy articles goes way up. I see. If you punch out an article in foreign policy, you will beat me because I don't have that track record of writing that deeply and unopinionated. So yeah. that's the third bit. And the fourth, the source reputation is an average score of all the articles that have ever been published by that site. Uh -huh. And so we take those four, we crunch it. There's a bunch of sophisticated math behind the scenes. And we spit out a score between one and 100% on every article. Mm -hmm. And we colloquially say that, look, if it's over 75%, it means that article is quite informative. There may still be, of course, some bias, which is why we curate different views from across the political spectrum. But on the whole, we're going to try to give you the most informative articles on a topic. And the upshot of all this fancy talk is, you know, if you look at all the four signals I said, none of them are popularity metrics. It doesn't matter how well an author is known. It doesn't matter how many likes or tweets or followers they have and how many backlinks they got which is you know, the main signal with Google is backlinks. And that's arguably a form of popularity as well. Mm -hmm. We eliminated all that and we said, no, we just care about these objective measures that a computer can count. And when we do that, it turns out that we can find amazing journalism in a wide range of sites. Often smaller sites can outrank the likes of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal because they really focus on a topic and they go deep into it. Mm -hmm. So the upshot of all this is that people get exposed to a much wider range of sources. They can also find good journalism in places they might have given up on. 
look, CNN, Fox, Breitbart, you name it. Because we rate on an article basis, you'll have good article ratings, you'll have bad article ratings. Sometimes the Times is great, sometimes not so much. Breitbart, which is one that most liberals would disdain, it's true, most of the time it doesn't score well. But yeah, sometimes actually it scores just fine. They yeah. do actually put out decent work. And so what it allows us to do is rather than very uh, coarsely just discard places and be like, those sites are terrible. We're saying, nah, just take a, take a second. We might find some good stuff. It allows us to find common ground with people that read those mm-hmm. and say, oh yeah, I did read that. Actually, I can understand you know, what the logic there is. I might disagree, but I can understand you a little better. That's what we're trying to do with this thing is help people see that it's way more complex than any headline could ever suggest. Every issue, you name it, I will guarantee the issue is complicated. There are no simple answers. And if you read these credible viewpoints across both spectrum, you start to appreciate the complexity of, of these stories. Yeah, just browsing quickly through the factual the UI is very clean. You can see the, the, the product experience. You can pretty easily read this like any newspaper front page, you know, with links into articles, but there's a quick, you know, visual representation reminds me a little bit of Rotten Tomatoes where you can see, you know, the certified fresh stuff that's above 75 score on your ratings. What I found interesting while browsing around is that I couldn't resist looking at Elon Musk and Twitter to see how articles rated in that category and very few were even hitting 75%. What happens when there's just a, a news shortage, like a, a good, healthy, well-informed news shortage on a topic, partly because the topic might be complex and, and shrouded in misinformation to begin with? How do you address something like that? Yeah, you know, read based on the grade is sort of our basic thesis, right? So if you go to the website, which is factual.news, you can... Su- click on any trending topic and click on Elon Musk, you'll see whatever two, 300, 400 articles that might be there in the last 48 hours. And you can just sort by the grade and pick the highest grade. When there aren't a lot of highly rated articles, the thing that people should clue in on is like, hey, there's a lot of just mindless chatter on this topic. And when it comes to Elon Musk, that's actually very true. First of all, let's be clear, Elon Musk gets the clicks. Whatever he says, whatever he does, people click and are fascinated and want to read. Mm-hmm. So news publications know this really well, and they churn out a lot of stuff based on nothing more than some tweet or some reply to a tweet, and they'll create a whole article out of that. Literally what was happening with his poop emoji. There exactly. Plenty of articles on his poop emoji. Right. And so, you know, it, the problem is they're getting the views, and, and that sort of supports their model, but What we're showing when we rate these articles is there's just not that much high information value. Mm. And so what we try to do is to tell people, hey, your time is precious and your time is limited. Focus on the stories that are actually valuable and informative. Mm -hmm. If they're trending, so Elon Musk is trending and has been for the last few weeks, great. Just click over and see if there's anything interesting or new and if there's something highly rated. And if not, it's okay. Skip it. Your life will not change. One of the things that, you know, our, our business model is a low-cost subscription and has zero ads. So it's five bucks a month or 25 bucks a year. And we do have some free offerings as well. So we want to make it accessible to everyone. And, and thankfully, we have data that suggests that we have a very wide cross-section of America that leads us. But by not having any ads, we don't care about views and clicks. 
We don't look at time on site. I don't care about any of the traditional metrics that newspapers have. All I care about is, do you come back reasonably regularly? At least three, four times a week. It means I'm doing something good for you if you're coming back. Mm -hmm. That's it. I have one metric. What it means is we can solve for people's time. And what I want to help people understand is that most news is not that important. Really, it's not. Your life will not change. Let us try to make you aware of the things that are important that might impact your life or might be important in the future. And let's cut out a lot of the other junk. That, I think, is a very different way of thinking about news that most news organizations never think about. They think about monopolizing your time. How can I print more pages to make you read more, to run more ads against? But that's not solving in people's interests. If you want to solve in people's interests, you should tell them what's important and cut out the rest and say, you know what? You're done. Congratulations. You caught up on the news. Put it down and go play with your kids or go to the beach. I don't know. Do something else. Absolutely. And, and then the interesting, there's a couple of interesting angles that I wanted to pursue with you. One is just the idea of media literacy and how you can teach people to use tools like the factual, but how you can also maybe help elevate folks' awareness of misinformation and the importance of finding good sources. Related point is how we're entering into a curatorial age where people need help filtering through the immense complexity that's out there, which is why I think the factual is playing an interesting role. It is perhaps from an engineering perspective, a search problem. But from a consumer perspective, it's an information overload. That's right. Filtering problem. You know, we're looking for trusted partners to help navigate all this. Can you talk a little bit about how you understand the, the learning space and yeah, the way yeah. in which people can get better at, at media literacy and, and, and getting smarter about this stuff? Absolutely. Both are very good questions. So we'll, we'll cover both. On the first one on media literacy, it is absolutely core to what we're doing at The Factual. One of our investors at The Factual actually said, they said a critical skill for the 21st century is that people need to evaluate the credibility of information that's coming at them. You have reading, writing, arithmetic. Well, critical thinking is number four on that list. It is, it is required. It's not an option anymore. And so when we set about building The Factual, we wanted to help people understand how to evaluate news using some sort of framework or some simple rules of thumb, because we know that many times they're going to encounter news where the factual isn't there with its rating. Maybe someday it will be ubiquitous and wonderful. I hope that day comes, but it's a ways out. And so now we want to teach people how we do it and be transparent with it, because then when we're not around, they'll ask those same questions. Mm -hmm. When you see the, the rating, like you said, you know, it's kind of like a rotten tomatoes kind of thing. If you click on the grade, you see a little box pop up, which is color-coded with those four factors. How well-researched, how opinionated, how much of a topical expert is the author, how reputable is the source. And you see that on everything we've ever published. And you can click and you can see details and you can see number of links, quotes, all this other stuff. We'll give you all the detail. We think that if we do our job right, we are simultaneously teaching people this format, this way of evaluating news and engaging their brains. Because the truth is, with that first foundational assumption I said that all news has bias, it means that as readers, we have to be active when we read news. It's not a passive thing where I just read it and just say, oh, you've got to be, you've got to be engaging that frontal lobe and say, hey, okay, I get this, but I want to see this angle or what about this? Why did you do this? 
The great reporters, by the way, treat their audience as smart. Mm. The great reporters give you the complexity, show you the angles. It's like, look, I know, for example, let's take, you know, a subject that was huge for the last two years, COVID and vaccines or something like that. The great reporters showed the complexity. The vaccines are good. These are the results, but we don't know this. This is what we've seen. These are the reasons why people might not get a vaccine. This is how a highly vaccinated population may or may not function. This is what natural immunity looks like. Like all of the stuff. And it's like, wow, okay, I get it. You know, because that builds trust with that reporter. You can count on them next time to tell you something useful because you're seeing that there's no simple answer. So anyways, I think media literacy is, is a very, very big part of what we do. And, and I hope that the transparency with our approach encourages that critical thinking and, and understanding of how to evaluate media. Mm-hmm. And just before we get into the curation, which is yeah. kind of a larger topic, are you doing any work in augmented reality where you're wearing your, the factual lens? <laughs> and while I read the article, I just see a layer on top. Like where is, where's that in, in, in its development life cycle? Man, Michael, you should be a product manager. That's a cool <laughs> idea. We're a tiny startup. We don't have those kinds of uh, resources yet. And I think the AR stuff is still sort of uh, working its way into, you know, having a form factor that's good. I did see that recent uh, one from Facebook and I think Snap has a new one as well. Yes. That's pretty neat. Mm-hmm. So I think once those become a little bit more established and I'm sure those companies will make available interfaces for third-party developers like us, then we can certainly add them. I think those would be very, very cool to do. Yeah. Nice. nice. I have to bring up some Web3 <laughs> topics. We'll talk about the blockchain perhaps a little bit later on, but, uh, but any thoughts around where we are today and the role of the factual and maybe the impact you might make, it does seem like the way we consume information changed when newspapers went digital with an advertising model. Has that run its course? And do you see a bit of a shift happening here? Where do you see things playing forward? Yeah, it's a tough question. I think what a lot of news outlets are recognizing is that it's going to be tough for them to survive on just straight up ads. It's a very tough ball game to play when you have people like Google and Facebook who are exceptionally good at the advertising game. I mean, from an advertiser standpoint, the ROI that you get from Google and Facebook is usually just orders of magnitude better than what you would see if you're just advertising on some lone news site. Mm-hmm. So I think news sites, if I were the editor in chief or the publisher of a news site, I would think about it this way. I've got a core audience that I want to capture and serve faithfully. And I want to make subscription revenue off of those folks. Mm-hmm. I also have people that are not particularly loyal to me that might come across my work in some news or something. I want to monetize them to some degree with advertising. Yep. So I think news outlets need to have a mix of revenue streams that then reduce some of the emphasis on one or the other. Mm-hmm. I think that a bunch of news outlets should go out of business. I think that they are not sufficiently differentiated from the next person. And so it's tough to win in an internet world if you're not differentiated. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why they're sort of carving out these niches. But I think those niches are going to become smaller and smaller as they just sort of get focused. And at some point, I think a bunch of them are going to be like, this is just not working out. We should go out of business. So I think that's going to happen as well. Mm -hmm. I think a new format of news is coming up that is very interesting where it's very newsletter centric. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. which happens to be, you know, the Factual's most popular product is the Humble newsletter. And it sort of makes sense. It was kind of the analog to what I was delivering on doorsteps at 7.30 in the morning. It just shows up in your inbox at 7.30 in the morning. And the newsletter is cheaper to produce. It forces a limit on the amount of content you can have because newsletters can't be very long. And it's a very focused delivery usually. That format is working and I'm seeing it show up in local and regional publications and they look very good. So I think a new format comes up that is different than the website-driven, heavy banner ad bullshit sort of thing. I think we're going to see something else come up. So those are some trend information I see. Yeah. In terms of the curation, it's such a good point, Michael. There's this very famous computer scientist named Stephen Wolfram. He founded this company called Wolfram Alpha, very complex mathematical software that he built. And he's just written tons of papers. He's like a legend in the CS field. He testified to the U.S., I think the House Senate Committee on Commerce or something like that two, three years ago. And he talked about the information credibility problem. He's like, how do we solve this? So, you know, senators and House of Representatives are asking him and he said, look, here's my thesis. Information continues to explode. That's not going to change. It's just going to keep growing and growing. As humans, we need to have filters to filter this down to something manageable. But rather than have filters that the government deems or something like that, what we want is third-party companies that provide filters and that these filters are transparent in how they work so that you as the end consumer are knowingly selecting a filter, saying, this is the kind of stuff I want. These are the things I like. That's why I use this filter. Mm -hmm. And so it was just coincidental that the factual built a version of what Stephen Wolfram was saying. We're a filter, we're transparent, and we solve for a particular type of news, highly informative, non-opinionated, expert-written news. That's what we've chosen. There's a bunch of people that seem to like that model, and they apply our filter. I like Stephen Wolfram's vision. I think it's a good one. It's rooted in science and in economics. It seems decent. I think we're one version of it. I'm hopeful there are many more versions like us that show up and that people basically have these choices and say, yeah, I I like this curation because it simplifies the world in a way that I can understand. And hopefully, you know, if these filters are designed with the right business model, we don't once again wind up in filter bubbles and only seeing one side of the thing, but are really built for serving the public in a good way. Mm-hmm. That might be a little wishful thinking on my part, but I'm hopeful that's the outcome of filters and curation in a world with exploding information. Yeah, I like that. And I like the note about transparency where, you know, the, the fact that we're, our lives are managed in many ways by algorithms is just a reality. And I think the problem frequently is who are those algorithms designed for and how do I get some visibility into them, especially for what I would call more a power user, you know, people who don't just yeah. keep it simple. That's a different audience. I would like to hear a little more from you on thoughts about trends in education, because we don't always get folks who are outside of education thinking about where the world of learning is going. Any lessons learned from launching the factual or from your experience around critical thinking in the news? that you think might be relevant to an audience who's focused on the future of learning? 
Yeah. Funnily enough, I was speaking with Greg Lukianov, who's the founder and CEO of FIRE, which is the Foundation for in Individual Rights in Education. Mm. And it basically fights on behalf of professors typically, but also students to have free speech on campus. And he's a very interesting gentleman, very sharp. And he was explaining why diversity of thought is so critical when it comes to learning. Because when you want to really understand a topic, you need to see all the different angles to a story. And you want people with different ideas coming together. And some of those ideas may be hard to accept. Sometimes it might be distasteful, but you've got to win on the basis of facts and logic and reason rather than on censorship and shutting it down. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is a lesson that we've learned at the factual as well. Of course, our whole thesis is that everything has bias. You've got to see different angles. One of the interesting things that we've done is we have a discussion forum where people get to talk about the news. It's very different than anything you'd have seen on Facebook or Twitter or stuff like that. For starters, it's anonymous, which allows people to speak freely and honestly. And then it also allows people to change their identity with each post, which means you're allowed to change your mind. No one's going to hold you to something you said six years ago saying, oh, well, you said that. Look at this. Mm. We also pose the discussions around the poll on a topic that's trending. So today's poll happens to be around Ukraine and the city of Mariupol in Eastern Ukraine has officially now become Russian territory. So mm. the poll is, should Ukraine cede some territory in order to bring end to the war? And so we pose questions in a non-leading way on thoughtful topics. We give people simple choices to vote, yes, no, unsure. And then they comment anonymously in a way that doesn't preserve history on why they think that way. And so what this atmosphere does is it allows people from a wide range of backgrounds to weigh in. And comments are rated, again, for quality rather than popularity. And look for quality signals, just like we look with articles, length and tone and sources and all this stuff. The upshot is you get really interesting and diverse viewpoints on a topic. And then whatever topic you might have thought, and take the most divisive ones like abortion in America you will start to understand why people have different points of view. It is not the caricature that you typically see on news. It's that people are really thoughtful about it. Mm. Whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, people have really genuine, thoughtful concerns and interests in why they believe a certain way. Mm -hmm. And when you read these things, you can't help but at least empathize to some degree with the other side. No one's saying you have to change your mind but you can at least understand, okay, I get it. Yeah, I'm not there with you, but I don't hate you anymore. I think that's a really important thing that we need to do or we could do when it comes to education as well. Mm -hmm. There are different ways to teach. There are different answers sometimes to the solutions. You want students to be exposed to the confusion and the complexity. You want them to figure out on their own reach different conclusions than the teacher, challenge the teacher. Those are great things, right? Greg and I talked about safe spaces, which is this concept that's very popular on campus. The safe space is not, I want to be safe from being hurt. The safe space is, it's okay if I fail and screw up because it's just school. Mm -hmm. I'm just here with my teacher and my classmates. Nobody's going to, there's no professional impact. That's the safe space. So in your time in school, yeah. I think if possible, be exposed to a really wide range of opinions and ideas and facts. See the complexity, embrace the uncertainty, appreciate other viewpoints 
struggle, fail a little bit, try some things. It's okay. It doesn't work. No, no big deal. That's why we're getting, we're in school. Then you come out much stronger. I think you come out much more empathetic to your fellow citizens. I think you make better decisions, whether you're in public policy or in the private sector. I think we just have a more humane society if we just understand that it's okay to have different viewpoints. Like it's not, that's how humans work. We all do have different ideas. That's normal. That heterogeneity in thinking, I think is, is very important to promote. And I'm not sure from the little I know about education, from a third party and just a parent point of view, I'm not sure that is a focus or an objective of education anymore. You mm. show complexity, show diversity, show contrarian viewpoints. I don't know that that's something curriculums care to do, but I would love if they did. Arjun Morthy, the co-founder and CEO of The Factual. Thanks again for joining. If folks want to learn more, we pique their interest around The Factual. Where should they go? And then let's hear your concluding thoughts. What should we take away from this conversation? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me, Michael. It's been delightful. If anyone listening wants to check out The Factual, just go to thefactual.com. You can follow us on Twitter, on, on Facebook, on Instagram. You can follow me on Twitter if you want. I'm a Juice Morthy. It's my nickname from from college. Uh, best thing to do is just sign up for the newsletter. It's easy peasy, shows up in your inbox five days a week. It's simple. And from there, you'll discover all the other stuff, the website, the app, et cetera. Everything's there. In terms of my concluding thoughts, I would say that the world is a nicer place than it sometimes seems like in the news, that people have a lot more in common than we might realize. The business model of news and information incentivizes extremism and combativeness and divisiveness. But as a population, we aren't actually like that for the most part. It sort of amplifies the extremes, but most of us are kind of just in the middle, humdrum sort of people. So don't despair when you read the news and feel like the world is going to hell. A lot of times it's just a nature of the news game. And actually most things are good. There's a lot of good stuff out there. And if you read high quality news, you will feel informed without feeling angry or sad. Mm. And that's what news is supposed to do for you. It's supposed to make you feel informed. It's not supposed to elicit an emotion from you. If it is eliciting an emotion, that's probably not great news. Mm. Um, that's not what news is supposed to be. So maybe that's what I'd say is that's your ultimate signal to noise ratio. Just think about, is this thing making me feel informed? Or is it making me feel a certain way, angry or sad? then maybe I'm not reading something that's good for me. Try to improve your media diet. You'll feel healthier. You'll feel happier. And then also don't overdo it. You don't need that much news in your life. For most people, 10 to 20 minutes a day is plenty. And then get on with other stuff. Awesome. Fantastic stuff from Arjun Morthy, the co-founder and CEO of a company called The Factual. Hopefully our listeners enjoyed it. Let us know what you think. Tell a friend, subscribe, do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.